and welcome to SSI Live. You've long known the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College as the go-to location for issues related to national security and military strategy with an emphasis on geostrategic analysis. SSI conducts strategic research and analysis to support the U.S. Army War College curricula, assist and inform Army, DOD, and U.S. government leadership, and serve as a bridge to the wider strategic community. Now we're bringing you access to SSI analyses, scholars, and guests through this, the SSI Live podcast series. Thanks for joining us. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute at the U.S. Army War College. It is Wednesday, June 6th, and today I'm joined by my SSI colleagues, David Lai and Jeff Troxell, and my War College colleague, Fred Gellert. All of them are professors of national security here at the Army War College and uh, keen observers of American foreign policy and specifically the uh, intersection of U.S. national security policy and China these days. They have just completed a major study available now for free for downloading at the U.S. Army War College website or at the SSI website entitled Avoiding the Trap, U.S. Strategy and Policy for Competing in the Asia-Pacific Beyond the Rebalance. So I've asked the three of them who function uh, as editors-in-chief collectively to join us today to talk about this major report that just came out uh, just a few weeks or months ago. So Fred and David and Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. uh, Fred, let me start with you. Let me ask you to provide us, if you would, the framework. So set the scene for us. Tell us a bit about this project, who was involved in it, and, uh, and what did it entail in terms of actually producing this uh, this major study that's just been released. So uh, as we started the uh, 2017 academic year here at the War College, so this is fall 2016, we collectively, the faculty uh, on this project, came together, and David really began with a question of, hey, we're about to get a new administration, U.S. administration. What, you know, what do we want to say to them about the Asia-Pacific region? All of us uh, are involved in teaching uh, various parts of uh, Asia, Indo-Asia Pacific studies here and other uh, components of the curriculum here dealing with national security. And so what it kind of, uh, you know, what, uh, what should the new administration know? So it really started with two main questions that are listed in the summary here. Uh, as we executed this United States rebalance to the Asia Pacific uh, from the Obama administration, was it the right thing to do? And then Secondly, have we done it right? That really were the two opening questions of this project. So we, uh, we began with that. We solicited student participation. We ended up with 18 students. These were a combination of military officers from the Army, Marine Corps, and Navy, uh, and some civilians, uh, including an uh, agency for international development uh, officer, uh, including three international students uh, who gave us a very good flavor of uh, for out in the region, three countries in the region. So this team of uh, students and us three and an additional faculty member that provided input began to work on this, and we created an outline uh, that ended up being the chapters that are in the current report, and uh, individual students or pairs of students took on various topics to create the 13 chapters that are listed uh, in the report, and these became their research topic areas. We had sessions with think tanks, 
government organizations, individual researchers, and this was both in, in the United States and in a, foreign, in a couple of foreign locations as well. And we spent the academic year working through this. Uh, the report largely talks about, uh, it covers things in some country-specific aspects, specifically China, India, Japan, Philippines, and the Korean Peninsula, North and South Korea. It covers things in a broad regional uh, look, multilateral security, and the South China Sea as a particular uh, sub-region of importance. It tries to illuminate across various national power elements, economic, military, and some of the softer power considerations of diplomacy, information, and people-focused activity. And so that summarizes the areas that we looked at. Each chapter combines some historical and contemporary issues, national policy analysis, and research-informed recommendations to largely what we're trying to do is offer to U.S. national leaders at that time, we knew it was going to be a new set of leaders, uh, some ideas and considerations on making strategy and policy for the Indo-Asia-Pacific region. So that summarizes what we were attempting to do with this. Well, it sounds like you had a, a wide-ranging team, including an array of U.S. military officers and, and international fellows, that is, uh, war college students from, from other countries, and an, an impressive range of topics you discussed. In terms of now... What has come prior to the Trump administration? You mentioned, Fred, that as the new administration was coming in, you wanted to think about, okay, what will we, what will we tell them? And I imagine part of that is examining what has come immediately before. So can you tell us in, the, in this study, in this book, how did you all, how the team characterize the Obama administration's efforts to implement this rebalance? Yeah, this is uh, David I. The Obama administration has launched this uh, signature foreign policy approach in the United States foreign policy towards Asia-Pacific, and its official term is strategic rebalance towards Asia-Pacific. And as we started off uh, with the question of um, whether this is the right thing to do and have we done it right, and our answer from this study and discussion is that it is the right thing for the United States uh, to launch this huge foreign policy uh, pivot. However, we haven't done it quite right. Okay. Let me ask you how that applies now to the Trump administration. The administration's only been in office for, what, a year and a half. But can you describe how and whether the Trump administration has picked up where the Obama team left off? What would you, how would you characterize their approach so far? Well, the uh, Trump approach at this point uh, appear to be going, as I would put it in a very provocative way, is really look like a strategic rebalance 2.0. Because the first one with the Obama team uh, kind of rests on some questionable assumptions that the United States would try to prevent the rise of a hegemonic power. And also, uh, the second one is not putting China in the right place in that uh, Obama's uh, approach. Well, at this point, um, the Trump national security strategy and its approach appear to put China on its right place and more straightforward and more bluntly uh, in that sense. And then uh, what appeared to, uh, to me at this point is like uh, Trump is putting more actions to it rather than uh, talking points with more actions to it. The Probably the most significant change at this point is renaming the Pacific Command as the Indo-Pacific Command. That 
has a lot of uh, significance to it. And as the uh, the policy unfolds and the administration continues their approach in this area, uh, that probably opens the door for many, many other issues. Well, David, let me ask you, or Fred or Jeff, let me ask you to expand upon that a little bit. I mean, changing the name of the U.S. Pacific Command frankly sounds, you know, like uh, more style than substance. Is there a substance in terms of the, the difference between the Trump administration's early approach here insofar as we can assess it and what Obama was trying to do? Well, this is Jeff, let, Jeff Troxell. Let me, let me just weigh in very briefly. I mean, uh, along with changing the name of the Pacific Command, I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with the adoption. The Trump administration actually has a strategy, the open and free Indo-Pacific. So one of the problems with the rebalance in the Obama administration, it was just sort of a set of announcements, and it never coalesced around a strategy. Now, at least the Trump administration's got a strategy. Now, whether or not it plays out in execution, time will tell. But I, but I think that approach helps in terms of letting our partners know and letting China know that we are interested, we, the United States, along with our partners, are interested in supporting an open and free Indo-Pacific region. I know your study also addresses the importance of cooperating with China to some degree. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? What, what, what do you mean by that? Okay, let me uh, tackle this one. This is Fred again. So early on in the report, we came up with, how do we sort of summarize this? We came up with a strategic goal, a strategic task, and a strategic vision. Sort of, you know, often when you do these kinds of uh, policy changes, you kind of got to have some goals and a vision. So our strategic goal that we posit for the administration was ensure American leadership, security, and prosperity. That is, that's not radical. You see that in so many of the, of the national-level documents. The strategic task, however, is to accommodate China's rise. As David uh, pointed out, it's, it's, it's really about putting China's uh, square center. Accommodate China's rise through competition without conflict. So I'll come back to that in just a moment. And then lastly, our strategic vision is you do it in priority by economic means, enabled through good, solid military power, and tempered by diplomatic efforts. So if you do all of that, this is how we're going to advance this forward uh, with the goal of not getting into armed conflict. Now, the question about cooperation versus competition. Um, it, throughout this research and uh, going out and speaking to uh, both Pacific Command, uh, Army Pacific Command, uh, some foreign partners, uh, this question of competition versus cooperation comes up all the time. I, the way I would look at it is simply this. This is a competition. There is no doubt about that. But like we said in the report, we're trying to do that without resorting to conflict, and therefore we're going to cooperate in things. You have to. There's going to be areas of cooperation. It begins with, uh, when I was stationed out at Army Pacific, it begins with things like disaster management. That is an area that we already are cooperating with many nations. When hurricanes, typhoons, all kinds of things happen, we, we render efforts to, uh, to render aid. So that's an area of cooperation. But there's no doubt that we're competing. We're competing economically. We're competing dif uh, diplomatically and at the U.N. and other forums. And so it's sort of a balance with the end goal being don't get into armed conflict. 
you were getting at exactly what the, the heart of the issue here. I mean, as you guys know, the national security strategy just came out in uh, December, and the national defense strategy, the new one, came out in January of this year. And both of those documents identify competition with both China and Russia as really significant drivers now of American foreign and security policy. But I'm gathering from what I'm hearing from you that you don't think that that is necessarily uh, mutually exclusive with cooperation in some spheres. Is the sort of approach I think that some have termed cooperate where we can, confront where we must. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, it's actually it's it's real good. In fact, um, as I was getting ready for this session, I went back to the to the 2018 uh, National Defense Strategy and the 2017 National Security Strategy. You know, one of the things when you do a project like this, you kind of always a little bit worry about, you know, is this going to stand the test of time or is this going to be some book on a shelf somewhere that people go, oh, that was a nice effort. And actually, I was pretty impressed where, as I looked through those two national, new national-level documents, the corollaries to things we talk about in this report. So, for example, uh, the, one of the things in the, the national defense strategy is the long-term strategic approach is to integrate all elements of national power, diplomatic information, military, all that sort of stuff. That's largely what this report is about. It's taking each of those and looking at how does it contribute to the whole from a strategic perspective to come up with how do we move forward in the future. So that was one uh, direct tie. Um, another one, the national, uh, the national security uh, strategy talks about preserving peace through strength. Well, that's a little bit of the we have to compete. That's the strength or that's the uh, string part, but then we also have to cooperate. That's going to foster the peace part. So so actually as I went back and looked at these documents, I was actually pretty happy how well uh, some of what's in there really nests with what the students came up with on this report. Let me ask you guys now about the role of the the rules based order. I know in your in your book you note the importance of using that order, uh, as well as what you described, Fred, maintaining American power as what might be conceived of as the ways and the means by which the U.S. can try to check uh, the more negative aspects of, of Chinese power. But you know, a lot of observers today think that that international rules based order is frankly uh, taken a few knocks. Not simply from what China has done, for example, in the South China Sea in militarizing disputed islands, but uh, arguably in some of the policies, according to some of the Trump administration, in terms of stepping back from the, the Paris Climate Accord and in, in some other ways. So let me ask you, what's your assessment of the health of that order today and whether we can really rely upon it in the way that's suggested in your book? Uh, let me take a stab on this again as well. Uh, this is David Lai. Uh, I think when we talk about this rules-based order, uh, we probably need to be careful um, to to look at this way, two aspects. One um, is China is really at this point not seeking to completely dismantle, topple, overthrow this uh, rules-based order. Um, China is looking to build on it, modify it, and something like that. So there is still room for us to coach China into this whole process that get China to understand it is not in China's interest to overthrow or completely rewrite or invent a new one. It's not in China's interest to do that. It's much more in China's interest to work with the United States 
we can acknowledge that there are certain areas don't even have rules, and there are areas that the rules are imperfect. It, it is perfectly okay for China to bring some modification or improvement to it, but it's not okay for China to revolutionize it. So that, that aspect, we need to make it clear. The two aspects need to uh, make clear in our narrative to China, um, and and also get China to understand. That's very important to promote cooperation uh, out of China. Well, let me follow up, though, David. Yeah, I, this is... Let me, go ahead, Jeff. Okay, this is Jeff Troxel. I was just going to add uh, sort of a broader context to this question. I think it's very critical, and you're right that it's important in the analysis in our report. But if you think about the formation of the rules-based international order post-World War II, the founding of the Bretton Woods institutions. I mean, at that particular point in time, Russia, then the Soviet Union, was in direct opposition. China, from 1949 for its first 50 years, likewise was in direct opposition. So in that context, where we are today, yes, there's some knocks against the system, but I think we're in a much, much stronger position than than a lot of analysts give us credit for. And I think David's point is very uh, appropriate to that, that China is very engaged in all of these international organizations. Russia remains engaged in all these international organizations. And even the United States, you know, despite some of the rhetoric that we hear, is very much interested in continuing to co-op and cooperate and lead in these multilateral organizations. So I think... The rules-based order is in pretty decent shape, and I think what we're seeing is countries trying to manage that order and trying to adapt it to some changing circumstances, but still trying to stay within the bounds. Okay, that, that's a good point, Jeff, but I appreciate that too, sort of providing a little bit of historical framing or uh, context to put what's going on now um, in perspective. I think that makes great sense. Let me turn to ask you guys now about the strategic vision that you've outlined. You mentioned in the book how you see economic, military, and diplomatic tools working together. Can you unpack that a bit more for us? How, how do they work together? And I guess more importantly, what's different about what you're proposing compared to what we're maybe doing today or have done over the last couple of years? Well, this is Jeff again. Let me let me take the first crack at that at any at any rate. I, I think there are a lot of similarities uh, to a certain extent uh, from what was going on in the Obama administration and now the Trump administration. I mean, if you think about the rebalance, the rebalance, at least in terms of the pronouncements from then Secretary Clinton and, and President Obama, addressed both military, diplomatic, and economic. I think the big criticism, or one of the big criticisms with the rebalance, was that in reality it seemed to all focus on military measures. So it, it may be a little bit counterintuitive when we look at, at, at the current administration's approach. I think we have a, a much more balanced approach to the region from the standpoint of both military engagement, diplomatic engagement, and economic engagement. Uh, and I, I think we see those elements at play uh, much more readily. And so, you know, as an example, what's going on in the Korean Peninsula, certainly the combination of military steps, extremely active di- diplomacy, and likewise the, um, the maximum pressure campaign from an economic standpoint. We'll see how that plays out. The summit's uh, just a few short days away. But I think that's that's one example of that. And as I mentioned before, 
Uh, the U.S. has been heavily engaged, probably a little bit more openly in all three of those areas with India, uh, very heavy engagement with Japan. So I think uh, we're seeing that, in fact, uh, the United States is, is right now, and I think it, it tracks, as Fred had said earlier, with some of the some of the recommendations from our students in both military, diplomatic, and the economic uh, instruments of power. Jeff, speaking of recommendations, let me ask you a little bit more about that or for any of you. Uh, among the recommendations, you guys, the, the study calls for uh, improving U.S. national power. Now, can, can you describe a bit more about what you mean by that and how you recommend it be done, especially without worsening a security dilemma vis-a-vis China? Well, this is Jeff again. Let me take another first crack at that, and, and uh, my colleagues can certainly weigh in. But, you know, I, I think, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, all the elements of power are at play. And I think one of the ways that you increase or, or improve U.S. national power is sort of apply the multiplier effect. And in this case, the multiplier effect comes in with our allies. Once again, this may be a little bit counterintuitive to folks, as they recall some of the campaign uh, statements from uh, then-candidate Trump, uh, sort of challenging some of our key alliance relationships. And now we're, you know, we're still getting a little bit of that rub in terms of trade issues. But I think overall, uh, the, the United States has been very active, as I just mentioned, in terms of engaging with India, engaging with Japan. I mean, we've re-energized the quad which is Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. So all of that, uh, cooperating with those key partners, tends to multiply our power as we try to maintain this free and open Indo-Pacific. But don't you think, Jeff, that that possibly concerns China insofar as it it could be perceived as a a reinvented containment of sorts? Well, you know, I, I think there's always that risk in, in any type of relationship like this. But I think, I think it's also, you know, hand-in-hand hand with the U.S. engaging India and Japan, Australia, and ASEAN countries. I think hand-in-hand hand with that is all of those countries are engaged with China as well. So there's, there's you know, this, this noodle bowl. And when you look at the Asia, the Indo-Pacific region, they often talk about the noodle bowl of relationships between all these different organizations, all these different countries, and so I think that India and China have a dialogue going on. Japan and China have a dialogue going on. Australia and China, likewise, both from an economic perspective and a diplomatic perspective. And so all of that, I, I think, is important. And it shouldn't negate the United States trying to firm up some of its relations as well. Jeff, that is a great segue to what I wanted to ask you about uh, lastly, and that is... You know, you described it as a, a bowl of noodles of a sort. Uh, some observers have called at least the U.S.-based alliance system in the Asia-Pacific a hub-and-spoke system, right, with the U.S. at the middle and bilateral treaty or other relationships with a variety of countries, uh, in contrast to the roundtable format of alliance relationships like NATO, where we have multiple countries sitting around the same table. I think, though, one could argue that the Pacific, Jeff, as you're describing, is really an array of hubs and spokes, right, with, with some countries forming their own hub with individual relationships with other countries, etc. One of the recommendations you all make in this study or that is made in the study is the proposal to develop 
or a call for a new regional security architecture. Can you tell us a bit more about what that might look like? Is this kind of an an, an OSCE, for those of us more familiar with the European context, that's the, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, that includes Russia and the U.S., for example. Is this kind of an OSCE for the Indo-Asia-Pacific? Well, uh, it may not. Uh, this is David Lai. It may not come so fast. And th- this is another one area where China and the United States at this point is competing for leadership, for the scope, and for the um, the actual uh, shape of the security architect, uh, both China and the United States have articulated uh, their some initial um, visions for this security architect. Uh, while China asking for one kind of inclusive um, and will eventually do away with the uh, the alliances, the United States. Uh, calls for one that still led by the United States, uh, which is a system that has proven uh, works for so many years, and improve this uh, this architecture. And the alliances will remain as the backbone, but eventually we can make it more inclusive, including China into it. Uh, however, uh, there are bumps on the road, and there are, uh, there are con- conflicting uh, viewpoints on how exactly this is going to uh, unfold and evolve into a um, system at this point um, is very, very premature. And uh, the European models may not be a uh, ready cookie cutter to uh, put into Asia uh, situation. Uh, It's going to evolve into something that's very different uh, from the European one, that's for sure. Exactly how it's going to turn into at this point is still not very clear. Really, depending on how the United States and China, uh, it's going to come to some sort of consensus or even compromise, if you will, on this security architect. That's going to promote a common uh, interest in the welfare for this region. David, let me just quickly follow up on that. Are there indications to date that the Chinese may be willing to work with the U.S. on this sort of a, a new security architecture? Um, not quite yet. Um, well, there are bombs in, uh, on the road, as I mentioned, for instance. Uh, we try to include, uh, a good example is that we try to uh, get China into the Pacific Rim exercises. Um, we already have China before, but this time we have just disinvited China uh, that, I think, should be just a bump on the road. It should not be a, a long-term because we can still invite China back to it. That is a very good example for incorporating China into our system. Okay, um, It's just like the old saying, but if China cannot beat us, it might as well just join us. And then when they become part of this, it, w- it will eventually see the benefit of it. And we will have a, certainly a hard time in convincing China that is the case. Uh, but if we have a vision, and we should be able to do that. Well, listeners, let me uh, again commend to you this major new study, this book, just published a few weeks or months ago, entitled Avoiding the Trap, U.S. Strategy and Policy for Competing in the Asia-Pacific Beyond the Rebalance. Again, you can find that. Uh, it's for, available for download now for free at the SSI website, which is ssi.armywarcollege.edu. And again, Professors David Lai, Jeff Troxell, and Fred Gellert, thank you so much for joining me today and discussing this, this major new study. Thanks, John. Yeah, thank thank you. you.
You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcasts, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. That's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.